begin in verse 25. If you have the Bible on your phone, feel free to pull that out. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, and it's, he, he begins here saying, now concerning the betrothed, and uh, he, he uses this word, now concerning. Um, it's a transition for us, and it's, the, it's a continuation of a thought that he had begun earlier, uh, in, actually here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, where he says, now concerning the betrothed. Uh, 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 oh, now they've got it fixed. Okay. Uh, <laughs> now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So in chapter 7, there are some things that they wrote to him, right? Saying, hey, here's how we're handling things. This is what we're doing. This is what we're teaching. And so he's addressing that. And so he spends the first 24 verses addressing a couple of things. Now in verse 25, he's creating a shift. And uh, now he's creating this shift pointing back to the beginning thought, uh, but he is using uh, this, this picture here where he is talking about, he says about the matters that you wrote, and uh, oh, that's pointing back. So now I've got my train of thought ready. Let's go. Context requires proper definitions. Okay, so when we are reading this section of Scripture, here's what's really important, and this is important any time that you're in the text. This is why we talk about studying the scripture versus just simply reading it, right? So if you're reading the scripture and something's not making sense, you should pause what you're doing. And, and today, more than ever, you have access to resources. Find out what the words mean, right? Okay, if it's confusing, find out what the context of the, the passage is. And, and, and here's the thing, because this, this next this passage that we're beginning with right here, it says, now concerning the betrothed, um, immediately, if I were to just start going through this, we would all come up with a definition for betrothed that is not the definition that Paul was using. Now, I want to tell you, I'm, I have said this for years, and it is very evident right now that the def defining the terms is critical to any conversation. And I believe that it makes up uh, the, the primary issue that we have when we get into disputes over what we believe with brothers and sisters, right? Because the truth is most of us stand in much greater agreement over certain matters than uh, there's more that we agree on than we disagree on. And part of the problem is the confusion that comes around terminology. Um, one of the uh, ones that is just really mind-blowing in today's society is that we have changed the definition of the word racism. Uh, and so I grew up with racism being hate towards somebody because of their race, right? So I have this uh, thing inside of me that I do not like them because of their skin color. And when I am using that word, right, with modern uh, or a younger culture, they don't use that word. And so you'll hear uh, younger people say, well, racism only exists when whoever is the majority in the group is acting a certain way towards the minority within the group. And so there is no such thing as upward racism. So you can't just use the word to describe hate towards somebody for their skin color. Now, what's even more mind-boggling 
is that not only has the definition of that word changed, but it has only changed in Western civilization. When you go into other parts of the world, they still use the classical definition of the word. And so you can take what is being written in an op-ed in Kenya, right? And you can read what they're writing, and if you take it and pull in the modern definition, you change the entire meaning of it. I hope I'm, I, what I'm saying is tracking. And this, this just is one practical, easy example for you, okay, to go and look up. Redefining terms creates complete and total chaos. And it happens naturally to some degree, right? We start using certain words in a different way. But then it happens on a level that is considered to be academically I feel like sometimes it's maliciously because it creates confusion. And we know this about God. God is not the author of confusion. So we know that God's not engaged in things that create confusion within society. This word betrothed, when we look at it in the Greek, and so when I do my interlinear, uh, which is where I'm looking at it verse by verse, uh, I'm, going to, uh, the, I'm going to the Greek on this because this is the language that it was written in. And this word betrothed translates in the Greek to be an unmarried daughter, a virgin, okay? You probably are familiar with it from the Google definition, which is the person to whom one is engaged. And Paul is not talking about any commitment from the, from the, the daughter here, okay? And it's imperative to understand that to really get the context of the role of father and a mother play in their relationship with their daughter. Because if you don't get this right here, we'll get into the later portions of these verses and we'll begin to assume that Paul is talking about something that he's not. It'll make sense in a moment. So I also wanna point out that this word here in the Greek is uh, Parthenon, right? And maybe you're familiar with the Greek Parthenon. This was a temple that was built uh, to Athena uh, and for them, they translated it as the apartment of the virgins, basically is what it breaks down to uh, when they talked about the Parthenon. Uh, so it was a place for virgins to come and be a part of the ritual worship to Athena. All right, so you'll see that word uh, Parthenon. Let's go to Luke chapter 1 here in verse 27, and I just want to really bring this in to help some perspective here. So... Uh, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So um, the reason I went to this text is that it uses the word virgin and betrothed side by side, okay? Uh, and uh, the word here for virgin translates exactly how uh, it does in the Greek. This is Parthenon. It's being used as virgin here. And then the word betrothed that is here is a completely different word in the Greek, okay? Now, this terminology for betrothed is the modern definition. So why do scholars do this? Because this text in itself, right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, reads as a series of almost scattered thoughts. And this is something that Paul did. Um, Paul was always thinking about how somebody would respond to what he was saying. And so a lot of Paul's writings can feel like, hold on, why is he jumping to this? He is thinking, I've just made this statement. Here's how you're going to respond, so I'm going to go ahead and address it. it almost, 
needs to have maybe those responses mixed into it, but because he's writing a letter, he's constantly addressing what he believes will be the next thought in their mind. And so, uh, uh, and then the word here, when it's talking about the, the a virgin's, uh, uh, and the virgin's name was Mary, you'll see that this is a different form of Parthenon, meaning there's a possessive form there. And so you have literally this picture of the Parthenon, the virgin betrothed, she's engaged, and that she is named Mary. All right, so we'll go back to 1 Corinthians, right now to verse 26. So he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So he's talking about the fact that, hey, there are these, there are people who are not married and there is an assumption within Christian culture that this unmarried maiden, right, uh, because it was proper and it was taught by the Jewish faith, right, and now many are moving into the Christian faith, that you're raising up your children not to be engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage. This is something that he had been addressing from chapters 5, 6, and the beginning of 7. And so he says, look, your daughter who is at home, uh, she is a maiden, she is a virgin, and he is saying, he says, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, this is why this is so tricky is that this is not just talking exclusively about a single man, but this is also addressing the position of parents, okay? So many times when he's talking, he's talking about, and he's using he, talking about the father, the father's role within the home, and, and he's using this language. I hope I'm, I'm, I'm connecting this for you. He's saying that, like, whatever the, the, the position of the father is, right? He's saying that it is good sometimes for the father's position to remain. You don't have to be influenced by the culture of the world all the time, right? You can, you can be in a place where you are acting in a way that honors God and you can continue to do so. But what's, what's interesting here is he uses this language, present distress, Okay, so what is the present distress? We don't, we don't know emphatically what the present distress is, but m most scholars believe that he was in uh, Corinth probably around 50 AD, and based on the oldest texts that we have our hands on, somewhere between 56 and 59 AD, Paul is writing this letter. Okay, so what's going on during this time? Well, Nero was now in charge of the Roman Empire, and Nero famously hated Christians. Uh, in fact, uh, he would take Christians and tie them to giant poles and use them as torches for his garden parties in the evenings. Okay, Nero was uh, uh, just a, a, a infamously terrible leader, and simultaneously, he hated the Christian faith. And one of the reasons that he hated the Christian faith is because the Christian faith operated in such a way expressing love and the giving nature of Christians that people were being drawn into the faith and they were more loyal to the faith willing to die than they were to him as ruler, right? And so he had this mindset like, I'm ruler over the greatest empire on the world. You should be subject to me and you should worship me 
you should think that I'm the greatest, and instead you've got all these people going like, no, I'm going to serve God, right? Because when I'm starving, God makes sure that I've got food. When I'm in need, God shows up. I'm going to serve him. And so this infuriated Nero. So this could be the present distress that Paul is talking about, but it goes beyond that. Um, but he uses this language, and he says that that in the current distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So context again, inside of these verses, Paul is making sure they understand that during seasons of distress, okay, whatever that distress might be, and it, it has to almost certainly be some type of persecution on Christians, right, that, that it is good for you to slow down and continue doing what you're doing when it comes to raising your family, when it comes to seeking out marriage. Like, don't just be trying to impress people or, or run out there and, and just to get married, to get married, slow down. But it is not a permanent position for the church, okay? And the reason I say this is because we talk about Paul being, being an advocate for being single, right? And this is true. Paul says, and he'll talk about it here again, that, hey, when you're single, there are some benefits, right? But specifically when a season comes that the church is in distress, when there is persecution among the believers, right, it is, it is probably a good idea to slow down when it comes to the idea of marrying and giving away in marriage. Verse 27, he, this is what I mean by he, him jumping thoughts a little bit, okay? He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So what's he doing? He's addressing the fact that as soon as he's talking about being single, there will be, and most of the time it's going to be men who are thinking to themselves, oh, well, this could be my justification to be single. And, and I don't know what it is for us, and, and I, I'll just speak to the men in the room. Uh, maybe they're females, you know, ladies, you'll connect with this. Maybe you won't. But there just is a mindset among men that the grass is greener on the other side. And, and, and when it comes to especially marriage, there, is, there can be this idea, right? And a lot of times that can just be uh, uh, kind of started by an interaction with another woman that somehow the grass is greener on the other side. Like, like, like this marriage isn't great, but I'll bet the next one would be good. And the truth is, and, and, and this is this is, you know, the, the language that, you know, Carmen and I kind of joke uh, about in our marriage is like, why would I give up your crazy to take on somebody else's crazy, right? Because here's what I have learned as a pastor, and if you just want some truth in your life and doing counseling, everybody's crazy, right? So you aren't going to escape the crazy house in this relationship and then all of a sudden not have crazy house in the next relationship crazy's coming, right? Okay. But when we can come to grips with that, we can come to grips with our need to do the work, right? And I, and I can tell you, my wife and I have an amazing relationship and people comment on it all the time. They talk about the way that they see us interacting with each other and with our, with our kids. Can I tell you, that's just because we just do the work, right? Right? We just do the work, and we have gone through seasons in our lives where it has been harder than there have been seasons where it has been easier. I'll tell you, the, the, the hardest, the darkest season I ever went through was when Carmen and I were just married for the first couple of years, and she became pregnant for the first time. 
I don't know what was going on. My whole life I dreamt of being a father, being a family man. It was just something wired inside of me. But man, the enemy gripped my heart during that time. I was in Bible college too, and I would have these fleeting thoughts that I could just run away, right? I could be in another state and disappear, and no one would know where I was. By the grace of God, I never acted on any of those things. Instead, I did what a crazy person does, and I went in and told my wife, I'm, my head is in crazy town, right? And that made her insecure, and it made things difficult. But man, the reward of working through that difficult season of our lives has been huge. And, you know, we're celebrating 22 years of marriage. And I'm only 42 years old, so I got, I got, I got a good jump on some people, right? Um, but I'm just saying, like, like, crazy happens, right? We go through things, right? We're always changing, right? My hip has pain right now from moving and working on my house. Sometimes my brain has pain. You know, and, I'm, and things are just difficult, and we have to do the hard work. Verse 28, he goes and he says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned, right? So he's trying to make sure, again, jumping thoughts. So I'm telling you, if you're married, don't be leaving your spouse going, well, Paul said it's better to be single, so she's on her own. No, 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 no. But on the same hand, if you do marry, you're not in sin, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So if a maiden, if the daughter of a family marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And so he says that there are going to be some troubles that they're going to experience. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. So let's jump into what this breaks down to mean, okay? Um, so he says that the time, that the appointed time has grown very short. Now this word in the Greek, it literally means to wrap up, to contract, or to compress. What Paul is saying, right, is that there is a shift, track with me on this, there is a shift in the way we live our lives uh, that we are experiencing that no generation before Christ ever had to experience, right? And why is that? Because the fulfillment of all prophecies is now coming to a close. We get into Genesis chapter 3, right? Sin enters the picture. Prophecy begins on how God will bring restoration. And when we get to Isaiah, he reveals that it's going to be Jesus coming and it's going to be God in the flesh. Everything shifts. Everything changes at that point. But Throughout all those Old Testament prophets, there's also this conversation around the eternal kingdom, the second coming, that Jesus coming back, right? And we, and we read this when we talk about Revelation, right? This kind of is summarizing a lot of those Old Testament prophecies for us and letting us be able to kind of see which ones were for second coming, which ones might have been for previous times. It's all coming together. This is what he's saying. He's saying that there were multiple phases of this thing, right? So Jesus had to be born. So everybody that was living before Jesus, they weren't looking for the new kingdom. They were looking for the Messiah, right? And now that the Messiah has come, the, the next thing, the last thing that happens, this is the end. Like, this is the end of it, right? It is the eternal kingdom, life with God forever, right? Where he's going to establish. So, so, so there is a compression that is taking place. Now, instead of knowing that first the Messiah comes and then there's going to be this new kingdom, all of that has come, and so all of the remaining prophecies all point to this one thing, and 
time is getting shorter. Now, because no man knows the day, the hour, right? We don't know when it's going to happen. What we know is that each and every day means we are closer and closer to what? To the return of Christ, to the final moment where you can accept Jesus to be Lord of your life, right? Or be separated from him for eternity. So, verse 30. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. So he's using this language, right? Um, uh, and, and going back to the previous verse, he says, let those who are, uh, let's see right here, he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. This is not about abandoning your wife. This is about the fact that, and he'll talk about this in a moment, but when you are not married, then your attention and affection is turned towards Christ. And when you get married, you take on these additional responsibilities. And so what he's saying is, is make sure that, at, that, that right now, because time is getting shorter, don't allow the, your marriage to prevent you from knowing Jesus in his, in his, in his true form, for being connected yourself, taking responsibility for your own actions to know the Lord. Now, he gets here and he breaks these down. So those who restrain, so this first one, uh, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, this is those who restrain their grief by the hope to come, right? So things are not good, things are bad, but instead of laying around and bemoaning it and crying and oh my gosh, it's all coming to an end, no, I am going to be content with the hope that Jesus is soon returning. My hope is in him. My hope is not in this world. I tell people all, all the time when, when the conversation comes up, like, are we living in the last days, right? Um, here's the thing. It says that when Jesus does re return, it will be as it was in the days of Noah, right? Well, if we go back to Genesis 6, God looked on the earth and regretted that he had made man. So I would venture to say that at some point, from a worldly perspective, it's going to feel pretty hopeless, right? But our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Him. And so instead of allowing societies that fall apart to consume us when they do, and sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, right? We have no idea where we're at right now. Our hope should be in Him, all right? So, uh, Go back here, he says, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. So those who are filled with joy because of the body of Christ, but without boasting. So it's this picture of being filled with joy from the hope, but not running around putting it in everybody's face. Like, I'm saved and you're not, ha, ha, ha. Like, you're completely missing the point if that's your, if that's your mentality to the people around you. And then he says here, uh, uh, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And this is a perspective that says those who own property but see it as a temporary and fleeting connection, right? So this is not a condemnation for owning things, but it's a, an understanding that these things are just temporary, right? Can I tell you, if you get a hold of that one right there, it can shift a lot in your heart, okay? Again, not that you can't have nice things or that you can't take care of things or you can't have aspirations, but when things don't work out the way you wanted them to or you wreck that car or you break that collectible, right? I mean, it, it's all a temporary connection because God has a bigger plan, right? He goes here in verse 31, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing. So those who use the resources of the world for helps, food, clothing, shelter, because it was created for this purpose. So 
this is what this is what Paul's saying. He says those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, meaning that God created the earth for us to be able to use its resources. Its resources exist not for us to abuse, but for us to use. So it is, it is good for us to grow food, to feed ourselves, and to help others. It is good for us to work jobs that create things so that we can have an income and provide for our family and help others. So learning how to faithfully use the resources that God provided. God provided them for us. We make use of them is what he says here. Now, and then he, he comes in and he says, for the present form, so all these things, this is how we should be acting. Time is getting shorter. We need to be living this way. Why? Because the present form of this world is passing away. And this, this, this term here, present form, it is like fashion or appearance, right? What do we know about fashion? Fashion is constantly changing right? I mean, it's really difficult to keep up with. And I don't know what it is, like when you're young, uh, maybe you just have like, you're more attuned to it, so you grab onto it faster. I feel like the older I get, I'm just constantly behind. There's just no hope. It's like, as soon as I do something I think is fashionable, my daughter goes, nobody does that anymore, dad, right? Okay. All right. I mean, she's very loving and sweet about it, but she makes sure I understand that that's not what they're doing, right? So fashion's always changing. I mean, how many of you have pictures of yourself when you were younger that you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I was wearing that, right? The fashion is constantly changing. This is this idea of appearance. This is, this is what Paul's communicating. Now, the way that this would have applied to the Greek culture of the time, right, the Roman culture, right, is that it would have been like the stage of a theater. This world is but one scene in a larger story, and this scene is coming to a close, right? The curtains are going to draw, the stage is going to be reset, and when it opens, it's all going to look different. And Paul says, he's using this analogy that they'll get because they didn't go to movie theaters. They sat around and listened to stories and saw small plays, and so they get the changing of scenery. And he says, like, that, that, that everything's constricted. It's shortened down. We're at the end of the act, right? And they're not going to be in the same setting anymore. It's all beginning to shift. So you need to live your life in such a way as you are expecting that transition, that you are looking for it to happen. He says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So what does he say? He says that the reason I'm advocating, if you're single, to, that it's okay to be single, even if it's for a season, is because you can focus on your relationship with God. This is not the excuse you have to break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend. I just need to get closer with God. It's me, not you. Like, like Paul said, no, that's, that's not what he's doing here. He's trying, to get in, he's trying to get to your mind before you ever get into that place of anxiety, right? So that you'll have... The, the time to be connected with the Lord and know the Lord faithfully before you even get married, before you ever walk into that relationship. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Why does he say worldly? Well, because when you're married, right, we know that marriage is not something there will not be marrying in heaven. I don't have an answer for you on whether or not you'll still be married. People go, well, it says there won't be marrying, but will you still be? I, I don't know. This is what I do know is that when you get married, right, that comes with some responsibility, right? It comes with some responsibility and you have to learn how to be sensitive to another person's emotions, to another person's expectations. And I'm gonna tell you, it adds tremendous value to your life. 
it has helped to mature me and shape me to be a better person, right? Paul is just saying that while that is happening, that is time that you could be spending with God. And so there's a trade-off. You're not in sin. Just be aware of the fact that if you are used to spending a lot of time with the Lord and all of a sudden you're married and you're like, oh, I'm really struggling to get my alone time, right? Or whatever else it is, that's part of what happens when you step into marriage. And because he's also speaking to single people, he's wanting to make sure that they understand this, right? Married people go, oh, yeah, I totally get it. Single people are like, I just don't want to say goodbye anymore, right? You know, one of the things I do in marriage counseling is I, I ask, who's going to clean the toilet, right? And they look at each other, and it's like, why does that matter? And I'm like, because somebody's going to have to clean the toilet, right? I mean, those are the things that are going to happen. There's going to, be, there's going to be new responsibilities. If you're a single guy, you've probably never cleaned the toilet. You've never thought of it. Verse 34, and his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So marriage adds a new priority to your life. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order, right? And to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There should be order when it comes to marriage, right? So if you are not married, get your relationship with Christ right. Make sure it's solid. You have a rhythm and an order. When you get married, you'll bring that in. A lot of marriages have not operated that way, and they're trying to figure that out from within the relationship, right? That's totally doable. You absolutely can do that. Paul is saying it's not the best way to do it, right? There is a better way to do it. So... Do you want truth or do you want your truth to be supported? And, and I say this because when it comes to marriage, young people sometimes can be so caught up in the fact that marriage is like this really important thing that they forget how to be single really well. And so when somebody talks about being single, when somebody tells them it's okay to not be in a relationship at this moment, they don't want to hear it. I, I know I was guilty of that. I, I did not want to hear anybody trying to tell me that it was okay for me to be single, right? And then when I wanted to get married and I was dating Carmen, I didn't want anybody to tell me to slow down, right? I thought, nope, I know I'm going to marry Carmen, and it's happening, and I'm doing it as fast as I can, right? Okay, now, I'm going to tell you, by the grace of God, it worked out. I do, I have spent a lot of time with a lot of marriages that did not work out that had the exact same mentality, Slowing down is an actually really good idea. So do you want truth that helps shape you to be a better person, or do you only want to hear things that support what you already believe? And so Paul's bringing this in, and he's going like, this is probably testing some of, uh, of what you have built up to be truth based on emotions. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Now, this is the verse that I wanted to really, why I broke down that betrothed at the beginning for you. This is not talking about a man and a woman, but a father and a daughter, right? And what are the passions that Paul is talking about. He's talking about the passions of a father to protect his daughter. 
that she would marry a good man, right? We used to have these commercials when I was a kid, and it would have uh, like this uh, person, and they were a junkie, right, strung out on drugs, and they were doing ballerina, and it would say, you know, some kid's voice would go, when I grow up, I want to be a ballerina, and then it would say, nobody says they want to be a junkie when they grow up. You remember those commercials, right? Okay. Uh, the idea is no father is sitting around going, I hope my daughter marries a jerk, right? No father is okay with that. No father is going like, I hope my daughter brings the creepiest, sleaziest guy on the planet, right? No, no, no. I expect that creepy, sleazy guys are going to want to come around, but I'm not tolerating that. Like, I'm not okay with that, right? And that's hardwired deep into me. Like, the moment that I found out that I was having a little girl, I immediately began to think to myself, like, how do I protect her from men, right? Right? And I consider myself to be a decent man, and I wouldn't even want her to have dated me as a teenager, right? Because of all the things that go on in here. I talked about crazy. We're all crazy, right? Take every thought captive is what Scripture says. Like, there was a lot of work to be done in the mind, right? And so, so Paul is saying here, he says, he says, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, so if you are thinking that you've created these expectations on your daughter and that now you're beginning to think, well, maybe they were unrealistic, okay, right? And if those emotions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. So this is what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that this is not, like, really creating a rigid structure for your daughter is not a sin, right? Okay, our world would tell you that it is. Now, you can be abusive to your daughter verbally, emotionally. Those things are wrong, right? But if you create expectations and standards for your daughter, and you feel really passionate about it, even if everybody around you is saying, oh, you're, you know, they're too strict, right? That Paul says you're not in sin necessarily just because you've created high expectations, especially if you're passionate about it. If it's something that burns inside of you to make sure she's safe, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. So if you begin to go, maybe I'm being a little too strict, right? It's okay to allow your daughter to marry, even in this season of distress. So he is speaking to fathers, right? Okay. He says, let them marry. It is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Meaning that within this within this, the context of marriage, that if the father is looking at the situation and going, I am not giving blessing to this marriage, then that is perfectly okay as well. And there can be a lot of reasons for that, right? One, one of them can be just that the guy is immature, something's, there's deception, he's not, you know, it's not, it's not measuring up like on a wealth status, like, well, he doesn't do well enough with his job, right? Those are not the standards by which we would go, oh, well, you're not good enough for my daughter, right? That's a broken look. But if the guy is a criminal, if the guy is a pedophile, if the guy is cheating on her and still trying to manipulate his way, you know, it's perfectly fine for a father to say, I'm not blessing this, right? The giving away is about the blessing that's given. I'm not doing this, right? And you're not in sin for taking that stand. 
So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And so if we're in the season of distress and you give your daughter over to be married, then you will be blessed. And if you go, no, you you are not the one that's marrying my daughter, you'll be in an even better place right? So a fa- this is what it tells us, is that a father should play a role in blessing a marriage. Dads, listen to me, play a role, right? From a very young age, right? And a man, you should want a father's blessing. There is blessing that will come favor on your life if you will walk out relationships this way. I'm going to tell you, I went and asked for Carmen's hand in marriage to, to, to her dad uh, when I was uh, 18 years old. We had been dating since we were 13. He told me no, right? And I know you're thinking, oh my gosh, you're so young. Whatever, judge me. Um, he said no for a myriad of reasons. I was incredibly immature, right? But do you know that for the next two years, I worked on all the things he pointed out that made me inadequate, and I went back to him at the age of 20 and asked for her hand in marriage, and he said yes, right? Not, not only was it something that I was in pursuit of, but it was something that she had an expectation of. And, and I'm telling you, the, 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 the blessing and the favor in our lives because of that and the relationship that we have with her parents and she has with my parents, it's huge. It's, it's groundbreaking to be in a place of blessing. Don't run from this. Culture uses this language like, well, you know, it's my first marriage, right? It's going to be okay, right? I mean, I hear people say that. Like, if it doesn't work out, it's okay. I'm still young. Like, like, like I, I, I'm not saying that if, you, if you've had to go through a divorce, like, you know, that, that you yourself are, are lost or something like that. We serve a faithful God, right? If you're married today, you've been divorced before, right? love the spouse you're with right now, faithfully serve them, right? Okay, we, we don't flippantly look at the, the divorce conversation, right? We don't just separate. And, and we should raise our children to be in a perspective that they are looking for a lifelong partner. Why? Because it's what honors God. It will bring them the most fulfillment in their life. And, and so these are lifelong conversations. These are life. So, and, and I'm going to tell you, like, if you're in here today and you're like, you know what, this is important. I'm going to start having these conversations. And your children are older. I'm not going to lie to you. You have a lot of world normalization to overcome. Because every time that they open the Netflix queue or the Hulu queue, it is talking to them about sex. You don't believe me, go home, open it up, Netflix, Hulu, and, and I, I challenge you to just look at the queue and not find something that is talking about sexual lifestyle. So the world has been talking to them for a very, very long time. And this is why it's important that we engage in the conversation with them while they're young. Because as much as we may try to kind of steer those things out and push those conversations away, the world doesn't care. And there are people in this world who honestly don't even believe that we should have the right to raise our children. Right? Yeah, they're the few and far between, right? But those conversations are being had. So what do we do? Lifelong conversations. Don't run from it. Don't be ashamed of it. Have the conversation. Talk about the expectations. I've talked to my children since they were very, very young about what dating would look like one day and what role we would play in dating, right? Okay? So that it wasn't a surprise. So that it wasn't like, whoa, what are you doing? 
Again, if your children are older, these conversations are going to be a lot uh, more difficult to navigate. But the younger they are, start talking about it. Because I promise you, the world's talking about it, right? This is, in the end, Christian culture. It is Christian culture. And, and this is not a culture based on skin color or the geography of where you are living. This is a culture that God has, is desperately trying to establish through His Word, right? Genesis to Revelation, He is trying to create a culture that, that reflects Him into the world. And this is a part of what it looks like to be in Christian culture. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And there will be seasons where everybody's like, man, I love the church and Christians are great. And there will be seasons where they're like, you're crazy and you're oppressive and the things you're doing are so bad. It's Christian culture. I'm going to own my culture. I'm a follower of Christ. I love Jesus. He's first and foremost in my life and in my family's life. And I'm raising my children to know him. It's their choice in the end, but I'm raising them to know him. I'm having these conversations. And so I would have to argue that when Paul is writing this, because they're asking questions, so he's responding, right, to a letter that they had sent. Like, these are, these are probably conversations that are being had because these are new believers trying to figure out all these new passions to protect, protect their children, raise their children, to love their children, right? And then their children being impacted by Roman culture and, and, and ideologies coming back and saying, well, they don't do it this way. And, this, and so it's like, well, what do we do? What's right and what's wrong? Because what I don't want to do is go too far as a parent. And so Paul's addressing this. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. This word bound here is not some type of like slavery, okay? What it is, is it is to be tied to or fastened to right? And so when that person dies, right, there is a freedom, right, to remarry. Paul again is saying, like, this idea of marrying, right, is not a sin. It's okay. It's okay to be single. Like, there's not something wrong with you if you're not in a relationship at this very moment. And I really think young people need to hear that because, man, it is the normalization is you've got to be with somebody somehow expressing yourself and the Bible is telling us it is perfectly okay. And can I tell you how this will shape your friend groups, right? Like, like, like if you begin to believe enough in yourself and have value in yourself enough that it's okay to be, to, to be alone and not in a relationship, then you're not gonna be okay with a friend who's dogging you for it or trying to push you into something that you don't wanna be involved in. And friend groups can be very toxic. The older you get, the more that you realize that, right? The younger you are, you're like, what? They don't know what they're talking about. I, I don't know how to convince you, right? This is where the burden falls back to mom and dad. Mom and dad be having these conversations, be showing them examples and engaged in that uh, in their lives. And then he wraps up this idea here in verse 40. He says, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. So he's using this, this, uh, this uh, hypothetical woman as an example. If her husband dies, she's free to marry. But he says, I believe she'll be happier if she remains as she is. And he says, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This right here where he's using this language, I think think that I too have the Spirit of God. If you just read that one verse, you would be like, oh, he's unsure. No, it's, it's, a, it's a, a tone of sarcasm because he has made it 
clearly established, and actually when we get to chapter 14, he emphatically makes it known that, that, that he is in relationship with God and the Holy Spirit is speaking through him when it comes to these, these, the, these instructions, right? So he says, and I think too, I have the Spirit of God. So what he says is this. He says, this is how God views it, right? Create a culture in your families that you are not afraid or ashamed to talk about sexuality. You're not afraid or ashamed to talk about relationships. And parents, be involved in the marriage process, right? Help set your kids up for success, right? Help set them up for great lives, for great lives. So remaining single in Paul's experience makes him freer from cares, distractions, and entanglements. Deciding to have contentment will help you navigate, like I said a moment ago, your friend groups. Let's stand to our feet as we close. Hey, the big idea today, the big idea, all of this talking about marriage and happiness, you know what? It all hinges around conversation. It all hinges around it. You need to be in conversation with your children, with each other. Look, I... A lot of times, marriages fall into these, like, these places of discontentment or unhappiness because somebody is ex- one, mem- one spouse is experiencing something and they don't communicate it. They don't just go, here's how I'm seeing this, or here's how I'm feeling this, or here's what I'm thinking, and it creates a... a this divide, right? Paul was beginning this last week talking about intimacy, the importance for intimacy within marriage, right? He says that some have a gift from God for that to not be the case, but most of us in our marriages, we need intimacy with one another, that connectivity, right? So that's an important part of it. We need to be talking. We need to be engaged with our children. We have a culture, right? We have a Christian culture, and it just doesn't look like the rest of the world, and it shouldn't look like the rest of the world. And I don't need to acquiesce to all of the things that they're asking from me. I can say, no, I actually don't do that. And then people will be like, what? Why? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you thinking like that? Why aren't you talking like that? Well, because, man, I love Jesus. His word instructs me to live differently. You know what the, the medium area for that is? The, the kind of the, the, the middle ground is? The middle ground is, well, I don't necessarily believe everything that's in the Bible. I just kind of take what I think is good and set to the side what I don't, right? If there are things you're struggling with within Scripture, really, I'm telling you, if you dig into the Word and start doing some study, you'll probably find revelation. You'll probably find understanding you didn't see before. And a lot of confusion comes from people from the outside misquoting a verse at you, and because you haven't taken time to go and study the verse, you go, oh my gosh, it says that? I didn't know that, right? They're not Bible instructors. Amen? Amen. Hey, listen, I hope you're encouraged today. You should be encouraged, not discouraged. Go home, engage in conversations, figure out what your family looks like, what your family perimeters look like. And if you don't have children, you can even jump into those conversations if you're married for what it's going to look like. And if you are single, you have permission to leave this place, not talk about any of it, and enjoy being single. You don't have to go home and worry about any of these conversations. Go home, love Jesus, and live life right? 
Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness, your consistency. Lord, I thank you for your word, that it speaks truth, and that truth sets us free. So I thank you for the freedom that we have in you. Lord, I pray that we would experience that freedom. Lord, that it would be something that we live out every day of our lives. Father, allow your spirit to minister to us and speak to us in all that we do. In your mighty name, amen, amen. Hey, listen, if you're sick in body, if you need prayer, if you do not know Jesus as Lord of your life, we have a prayer team at the back ready to meet with you and pray with you. The scripture says to bring those who are sick in body before the elders and allow them to pray with you. This is a biblical part of our faith. So if you need prayer, please connect with us in the back. If this is your first time, Don't forget to grab your gift at the connection desk. We'd love to connect with you. We love you guys. As always, go change your world. We'll see you next Sunday.